Well, good evening, friends. Oh, that was, dare I say, lame. Uh, good evening, friends. Welcome to our Good Friday service. We had a fantastic one this morning, and I can tell you this, you're in for a great evening. Uh, here's what we would love to ask of you this evening is, you're going to hear a series of things. We're going to reflect on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. So the seven last sayings that Jesus ever spoke on the cross, we're going to have five different communicators that are going to reflect on those teachings. And then we're going to hear seven songs about the cross. Some of them are going to be so familiar. How many, how many have been, maybe you've been attending a church some, let's say over 20 years. Anyone in this room? That's me. I'm well over 20 years. You know, uh, sometimes we grew up singing some great, we, we, we call them hymns. And we're going to sing a couple of those this evening. We're going to hear some newer songs this evening. We're even going to hear a couple of songs that were meant for you to listen to the words and reflect on them. But, you know, this is a moment where we get to celebrate Jesus Christ. And at the end of this, we're going to celebrate communion together. So why don't we start by opening in prayer. And then I'm going to turn it over to this fantastic music team. And they've done double duty already today. And our communicators are all ready. And they've already been speaking this morning to the rest of the Evangel Church family. But we're glad you're here this evening. So let's just dedicate this time to God. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks now that you loved us so much that you wouldn't even spare your one and only, but you spent him on us. How cherished we must be, God, that you be willing to pay such a high price for us in this room. And God, this is not a gift or a price that you paid for some and not for others. You did it for all of us, God. We've been fearfully and wonderfully made and stamped with the image of God in our life, and you cherish us and God that's humbling as we are in this room tonight to remember something so significant we're going to remember the high price you paid and so God we give thanks at the outset of this gathering and we want to express it in song and we want to express it as we reflect on what will be taught around your words on the cross Jesus, we just give thanks to you right now. And go ahead, just say thank you, Jesus, for the gift of your sacrifice, for your life that you lived for us and died for us. We give thanks for that in Jesus' name. I mean, just think about the events leading to that, that day, that moment. The agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and then the betrayal by Judas and an arrest by the Sanhedrin and then one of his faithful followers, Peter, denies him. And then he is a trial before Annas. And then another trial before the Sanhedrin. And a third trial before the Sanhedrin. Then he's taken to the Romans. And he is a trial before Pilate. And he sends him to Herod. And there's another trial. And then finally a sixth trial before Pilate again. And Pilate condemns him. Treason is the accusation, really, that finally they put him on the cross for. When you think of it, amazing when you think of it. And so here's this Jesus, and some of the very people that a week earlier had cried Hosanna are now crying, crucify him. Not the best week he ever had in his life. And, and then, he, then he scourged, unbelievable beyond what we can imagine. And then he carries his cross to Calvary, and he's so worn that he actually falls and has to have help. And then he finally gets to there, and he's crucified, and he's mocked, and his side is pierced, and he gives up his life. And while he's on the cross, he actually utters these sayings, and the very first one is a word of prayer. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, in the Greek, that's an amazing word. 
because that's a word that's a repetitive word over and over and over again. The tense of the Greek says that when he got to Calvary, he prayed, Father, forgive them. When he was placed on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. When the spikes went through his hands and feet, he said, Father, forgive them. When they raised him in the ground and dropped him in the hole on the cross, Father, forgive them. When he was cursed and reviled, he prayed, Father, forgive them. When the soldiers took his clothes and gambled over them, he prayed, Father, forgive them. He kept saying over and over again, Father, forgive them. We have no idea how many times he prayed it. We just know he prayed it over and over again. Do you know what his prayer really was? Father, forgive them and condemn me. That's the real prayer of Calvary. Amazing when you think of it. Now, here's the deal, folks. It was not a blanket forgiveness. It just doesn't mean that everything is gone instantly. No, you have to respond to the forgiveness. And the other thing he was doing, he was delaying the condemnation of God on sin so that we would have time. And that same God is still praying it again today and still praying it for all of us. Father, forgive them. Oh, God, give them time so they can come into eternal life. That's why Jesus hung on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43, we read, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is a profound and powerful statement. And it's a response to a question, a question from a man who was in need and aware of his need. Christ was being crucified, the old rugged cross despised by the world. And, and in those days, there really wasn't, anything worse than to be crucified. And Christ was placed at the center cross, which was the Romans' way of, of telling people that the man who is hanging at the center is the worst of all the criminals who are being crucified today. Now, we know that he hung there innocent. He died for our transgressions. But on each side of him stood two criminals. One who mocked him, saying, aren't you the Christ? Save us and save yourself. And another man rebuked him and said, don't you know who you're talking to? He is an innocent man. We have earned our places here. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. See, looking at the Greek statement, both of these statements are imperfect, meaning, once again, both of these things, it wasn't like they each said it once. They said it over and over again. Because each thief was looking for something different. The thief who was mocking him was also making a rhetorical statement like, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the one who was performing miracles? Why don't you save us right now? And the one is saying, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Both of these men were looking for Christ to do something at that moment. One, to save him from his physical pain. The other, for something beyond. Christ, you're on the cross right now, dying with us, but, but you're going to come into your kingdom, and when you do, please remember me. And Jesus answers the man aware of something greater, at least to some degree, this man was aware of something greater, at least aware of his need beyond that present moment. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth. And the Greek means like there is absolutely no doubt. This is 100% true. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. See, the thief's confession, he makes a confession, the one thief. He's, he's aware that he's done something to deserve it, and he's crying out to Christ, remember me. And Christ's response, though, that's even more profound, especially when he says, today, not tomorrow, 
not when I come back from doing what I'm doing. Today, when you pass from this physical life, you will be with me in paradise. In paradise. See, in that moment, because of what Christ did 2,000 years ago, what we're remembering today that Christ did 2,000 years ago, that thief, his eternal destination changed in an instant. He was accepted into heaven based on his confession of what he'd done and his acknowledgement of his need of Christ. And, you know, when you think about who Christ is saying, today you'll be in paradise with me too, it's kind of encouraging. Often we think about, you know, the things that we need to do to earn our way into heaven. This thief had done nothing to earn his way into heaven. He was being crucified, and he said, for what I deserve, I'm being crucified. He obviously hadn't lived a noble, good life that we would think would merit it, because truthfully, none of us earn our way into heaven. And yet Christ says to him, today, today, it doesn't matter what you did, today, because you acknowledge that you need me, and I come into my kingdom, you'll be with me. So I don't know where you are today, I don't know what Christ means to you, but I do know that today, your eternity can change. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lamaxavakani, which means, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? The Amplified Bible says it this way, Why have you abandoned me, leaving me helpless, forsaken, and failing me in my greatest need? New Life Version says, Why have you left me alone? Why, have you so, why are you so far from helping me? And from the words I cry deep inside myself. The words of Jesus' cry at that moment, really, was from Psalm 22 and 1. Jewish bystanders would have recognized those words. Then they would have known what had just happened had been prophesied many, many years before. Maybe some of you aren't aware of some of the words of that psalm. And here's some few key verses that we find in Psalm 22. Listen carefully. This was written many, many years before the crucifixion of Christ. For dogs have encompassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce to my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. So far, the story of the crucifixion has focused on the theme of hostility and mockery of both the Gentile soldiers and the Jewish bystanders. Now the picture begins to change as we see something of the true significance of what is happening this day. In the opening scenes of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' birth is marked by a supernatural light that guides wise men to the manger. It's a very interesting contrast that his death is marked by a supernatural darkness at noon that accentuates the loneliness of Christ on the cross. The perfect communion of eternity past was broken. The Father, in essence, had to say, I do not know you to the Son. Jesus had been betrayed and denied by Judas and all the rest of his friends, by the shepherds of his people, and by the Roman authorities. Now he was left alone by his own father. At that point, he began to bear the hell, the separation from God, of punishment,
for a world of sins. Some who were present mistakenly interpret his words as calling on the prophet Elijah. But you know, none of, none of the ready explanations of this extraordinary cry satisfy us. All kinds of theological questions are raised here in the text. Simply does not answer, particularly regarding the relation of Christ's divine and human natures. We may as well recognize from the outset that it is impossible for us to fully understand this cry of our Savior. And friends, thank God, our Savior has made it forever unnecessary for us to experience or understand this word from the cross. There seems to be little doubt that Jesus felt forsaken of God, even though we, not, we can't phantom all that it might have meant to the relationship between him and his Father. Yet his petition does not express hopelessness or utter despair, but a trust in God's vindication. The prayer highlights his extraordinary sense of intimacy with God when he says, my God, and his confidence that God will break through the alienation he now feels. So friends, do we need to fear that we will be forsaken by God? What happens when we have feelings of abandonment? We cry out, why? We, we just can't seem to understand. Well, scriptures say that God never leaves nor forsakes us. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors. Second Chronicles says, The Lord is with you forever and ever. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. Psalm 37 says it this way, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Christ praying before the crucifixion day. And he prays this prayer. He says, take this cup. And the cup he's talking about is this time that he is on the cross. And yet he says, not my will, but thine be done. You know, friend, doing God's will in the hardest times of our life is difficult. But it's in the garden of prayer where we can gather the strength to, fo to, to face our most difficult situations in life. Uh, John chapter 19, the saying is preserved for us by John and by John only, where Jesus looks down as he's hanging on that cross he looks down toward his mother, Mary, and he says, Woman, here is your son, thinking of the young man next to her, John the Apostle. And she looks to John, or he looks to John the Apostle and says, Here is your mother. He had been hanging on that cross probably for three hours at least at that point. Uh, in, in a severe, severe pain. We know that the crucifixion lasted uh, only six hours in the case of Jesus before he died, and that's unusual because we can see records in antiquity where we have victims on crosses for multiple days on end, two and three days. So he's probably very severely beaten and flogged before they actually put him on that, on that cross. And what's going on here, at least at the outset, is that Jesus seems to have the presence of mind, the awareness, the tenderness, the compassion to assure that his mother is cared for. Uh, in that culture, if you lost your firstborn son, and presumably your husband as well, because Joseph is nowhere on the scene after the Christmas uh, narratives, uh, you were in a, 
in a bad way. You were in bad shape. Uh, and she was about to lose her firstborn son, the Lord Jesus. And so he is taking care of her, as it were. And uh, John, we're told, takes her into his home from then on. But is that all that's going on? A couple of questions come to mind. Why is it, first of all, that Jesus, when he looks down at his mother, doesn't address her as mother? What mother, watching their son being executed, not dying of natural causes, but being brutally executed, does not want to hear the cry, mother, the term of endearment, at least, from the lips of her son? Why does Jesus address her in, in such an apparently cold way? Well, if you inspect the Gospels a little bit, you'll find that he never does. He never addresses her as mother according to the record. In fact, we see something quite different in the Gospels. Uh, Mark chapter 3, for example, we see uh, Jesus' mother and brothers outside the door of some home, and uh, they're giving a message to the crowd, your mother and your brothers are outside, they want to see you. And his answer is, well, who is my mother? And who are my brothers and sisters? They are the ones who do the will of God. Interesting response. Another question, why is it that Jesus gives this responsibility to John the Apostle and not to his own brothers or half-brothers? We have them listed for us in the Gospels. We have James and Jude who wrote books in the New Testament. And we have Simon and Joseph. Well, why doesn't he hand the care over to them? And the answer is they're not there. They're not there at the foot of the cross. In fact, it's likely that they weren't even followers of Jesus at that time. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 5, we see they're trying to give him some political advice bad advice when you look at the passage and and it says by by john the apostle writing there is even his own brothers did not believe in him a moral of the story uh there is no special standing is there not for mary not for jesus uh, half brothers not for any of us regardless of background regardless of standing we all need to come to the same cross, to the same Jesus by faith. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Amber. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm here tonight to share with you the fifth saying from the cross. I am thirsty. In John chapter 19, 28, it says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. You know, thirst is really such a profoundly human need. It's, it's really one of our most basic. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was both God and man. So you think, why is this significant? Well, it means that he experienced life and humanity in such an intimate level, being as we are in our humanity. And he truly became one of us and can therefore relate to us on every level. And whether it be our simplest needs to our most deep and most complex struggles and longings. So really, it should be no surprise to us that he would utter the phrase, I am thirsty, considering everything he went to leading up to the crucifixion and then the very crucifixion itself. You know, when somebody was crucified, their wounds would inflame over time and eventually they would get a raging fever 
And this fever would cause unbearable thirst. Although the fifth saying from the cross, it's interesting to note as well, it's a little bit different from the others in that this saying calls attention to Jesus himself. In calling attention to his purely physical need, though, he has two higher purposes in mind. Now, the first one is that he wants to show us that he is an exhausted victor. Now, when Jesus chose to express this, this phrase, I am thirsty, it is very significant. It wasn't until he knew that everything had now been finished that he makes mention of his own physical deficit of thirst. Now, you might be wondering, everything had now been finished. Well, what does that mean? It means that he had completed that payment for our sin. He made that payment, paid that debt. Jesus set out to be the perfect payment for all of our mess-ups and our disobedience to God, and he stood in the firing line that up until then had really been reserved for each and every one of us. And in those last moments when he was on that cross, he, he knew he had succeeded in doing everything that he had to. And like a victor in a long-distance run, he's panting at the end of that marathon, and he's saying, I'm thirsty. Although it's important to remember that he would never have expressed, let alone even considered, his own need, unless our greatest need, our need of, of being saved from our sins and from hell itself and having our relationship restored with God, unless that need had been met first. Up until that moment, Jesus had neglected his own comfort, his own welfare. But when he realizes that Satan's defeated, then and only then can he finally acknowledge his own personal need. Let us not forget tonight, he's thirsty because he's gone through our fire. And he wants us to, to really think about that and to remember it and to know it. The second higher purpose that he's calling attention to by saying, I'm thirsty, is that he's wanting to identify himself as the Savior. You know, the latter part of John chapter 19, 28 says, so that scripture would be fulfilled. And there are various crucial aspects of Jesus' birth his life, and his ministry that were all foretold or prophesied about in the Old Testament. And his death and his crucifixion are no exception. Psalm 69, Psalm 69 in particular, contains prophecies about the humiliation of the Messiah or the Savior. And verse 21 of Psalm 69 in particular relates to Jesus' declaration of thirst. In saying, I am thirsty, Seems like three very simple words, but I am thirsty. Jesus is pointing to himself as the one and only one who fulfills the scriptural picture of that coming deliverer. And really, it wasn't water per se that Jesus was, was wanting most in that moment, but it was a form, uh, perhaps a recognition or acknowledgement, but perhaps even more awareness. He wanted to bring awareness to the fact he was there to save mankind, and he wanted to see, all to see and know that he was the Messiah, the Savior. He knew that people mistaking his identity on this level would have tragic, eternally tragic consequences. So his cry, I am thirsty, really marked him as the promised Savior of mankind. We need to remember when we hear those words, I'm thirsty, that his physical thirst ensured that our spiritual thirst would be forever satisfied. And if there's two things that we can take from this and, and take, I guess, encouragement from or to, to, to remember is that, first of all, it shows us that he paid the price for our sins, but only after he had met 
our need for redemption because he would have never put his own personal needs ahead of ours. It also shows us that he is indeed the long-awaited and prophesied savior of mankind so that we can know, we can trust, we can believe, and ultimately be changed. Uh, Luke chapter 23, it was now about the sixth hour, which would be noon by our reckoning of time, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Uh, this is likely the final saying of Jesus, at least chronologically speaking. And it's interesting that he shouts it with a loud voice, Matthew and Mark also say. Uh, it's interesting that he uses the word father here. He started the seven sayings with father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And now he ends it with father into your hands. She goes from Father to my God, my God, and now it's back to Father. He is keenly aware of the presence of the Father at this moment, the moment that he is about to die. Very acutely aware of the presence of the Father with him, and his mind is in the Psalms again. This is from Psalm 31 and verse 5. He was in Psalm 22, verse 1 before. Uh, interesting that he goes to the Psalms. People in times of suffering and throughout history often turn to the Psalms for comfort. And Jesus did the same thing. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He has such a confidence in the Father, even at this moment, a confidence that we can have today because of what Jesus has done for us. Very significant also that we see this mention of the curtain in this temple ripped in half. Matthew and Mark tell us it's ripped in half from top to bottom. The curtain was a barrier. It was uh, four inches thick, some say 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. And it was in the temple, and it separated the holy place from what was called the most holy place. And that was the place that one person could go in once a year, very, very carefully, the high priest would go into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, and he'd go with a very special, very complex sacrifice of blood on his hands. And he would enter into that place where the Ark of the Covenant was to seek forgiveness for himself and for the sins of his nation. And he'd have to do it every single year. Very, very serious business. Who is tearing the curtain it's the Father who is so present, who is right there with the Lord Jesus, and his curtain is ripped in half. What does it mean? It means that we need no more high priest because the high priest who is perfect has come, and he has gone into that most holy place once and for all, not to look for forgiveness for his own sins because he has none, but to go and to atone for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future, all in one shot. No more temple needed. It would be torn down 40 years later by the Romans. 
You can go and you can visit the Western Wall today and go and pray there and put little notes of paper in the Western Wall of the temple. I looked at it online this afternoon. You get a live shot of the Western Wall, but it won't save you, will it? It's only the Lord Jesus, the great, perfect high priest, and what he did for us on the cross that saves us from our sins. He is the curtain by which we can enter into the most holy place. Well, there's no shortage of evil in, our, in the world, is there? And crucifixion is certainly an example of man's inhumanity to man. I mean, we can't even fathom how evil that was. It's certainly not the only evil. And I remember studying this some years ago, and here on January the 1st in 1863, Abraham Lincoln declared what's called the Emancipation Proclamation that ended one of the great evils in the world. He ended slavery in the United States as a result of that Emancipation Proclamation. Interesting thing is he wasn't the first one that ever did it. It's amazing that if you go back to Exodus chapter 6, you'll read about the people of Israel being in bondage. And God uses a man named Moses and sends him to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And God did some amazing things so that almost two to two and a half million people after 400 years of slavery could be set free. But the greatest emancipation ever declared, ever at any moment in the history of the world, was when Jesus hung on a cross and he said, it is finished. Three words in the English, one word in the Greek, tetelestai, it is finished. And at that moment, the greatest evil in the world, the, the cause of all other evils in the world, is slavery to sin, not to others, but to that sin nature that's part of all of us. And Jesus deals with that on the cross. It's amazing when you think of it. The Son of God has completely, absolutely, perfectly finished the work of reconciliation. And in doing so, folks, he doesn't only take our sins on himself, but he takes the penalty of those sins. He takes the guilt of those sins. And when we believe in him, he sets us free. What an emancipation proclamation that is. It's absolutely amazing. Aren't you glad that when Jesus was there, he didn't say, I am finished? He said, it is finished. Tetelestai. It is done. The actual word itself means it is forever and ever absolutely done. I wonder if you'd repeat the words with me for just a moment. Would you say it after me? Done. Tetelestai. It is finished. Done. Tetelestai. It is finished. What an amazing truth. Folks, listen, listen. It's, it's a farmer's word. I don't know if you know anything about farming at all, but all of a sudden a little animal's born, and, and it's not like other animals. Lots of animals have little flaws. They're not perfect. But all oh, this little lamb or this little calf is absolutely perfect. And the farmer looks at it and says, Tetelestai, it is perfect. It's just absolutely perfect. Or a sculptor comes along and does some beautiful piece of work in stone or marble, and he can't add one thing to it, take anything away, and he looks at it and says, Tetelestai, it is perfect. It's absolutely done. It's absolutely finished. Or, or, or it's a priestly word. Somebody would come to make a sacrifice at the temple and they would bring some poor, lame animal. No, no, no. Every once in a while, the perfect lamb would come. Something spotless would come. And the priest would look at it and say, Tetelestai, it is perfect. It's absolutely complete. It's amazing. And here's what the Bible teaches us in this last word from the cross. Salvation is the perfect word because of the sacrifice of Jesus. The emancipation proclamation has taken place, and you and I are set free. Hallelujah.
Here's what that means, folks. There's nothing we can add. The work is completely done. It's finished by Jesus. It also means if you believe in him, you can be reconciled to him, have the forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God, and eternal life. Is that good news or what? Christ willingly paid his the price, and God is satisfied with the sacrifice that he made. Nothing else is needed. And here's what it means, folks. Death and hell and the grave and the enemy of our soul are defeated, and we live forever because of Calvary. Good Friday wasn't really Good Friday for Jesus in many ways, but it's sure Good Friday for us because of Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and say it again. Would you do that with me? Done. Tetelestai. It is finished. Done. Tetelestai. It is finished. Hallelujah. Friends, as you're seated, our ushers are going to begin to distribute uh, two emblems. And for many of us in this room, they're familiar. And you'll receive a, a, a broken wafer, and you'll receive a cup. And I'm going to invite you to just hold on to both of those emblems uh, when you receive it. And we're going to take them together. Uh, the Bible encourages in many places. I'm, go- I'm going to invite you to do this before we take communion this evening. In fact, in the portion of Scripture we'll read in a minute, it encourages us to examine ourselves. Uh, David was really good at this. In the, in the Psalms that we might, and the ushers go ahead and begin to distribute the emblems. The psalmist would often say, you know, examine my heart, God. And he'd invite a close examination. I like to think of it of a, of a forensic accountant of sorts. When you open up everything and you're inviting that level of scrutiny, it's not because that God won't find some things. It's because you want them to. You, we think we can hide it, don't we? But we want them to find it because when Jesus touches broken areas of our life, they change forever. So as the emblems are being distributed, Richard's just going to play a, a familiar song in the background on the trumpet, and I want to invite you in this room, right across this room, don't worry about the person sitting next to you, but this is a moment just for you and Jesus. I'd invite you to just say, Holy Spirit, examine my heart. Examine my heart tonight. So go ahead and just posture your heart and invite them to do just that as you receive your emblems. If you've not been served the communion, you just if you can slip your hand in the air and we'll make sure that you get served uh, this evening. If you take the wafer in your hand, Jesus would gather with the very men that would desert him just before his death. Some that would even betray him. And he would say these words. He would take bread and he broke it. And that's significance. We've broken this already for you because it serves as a reminder of what was done to our Savior. That he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. One translation says, this is my body which was broken for you. Uh, Think of it this way. What you hold in your hand is a gift. Think about this, friends. Just ponder this for a minute. You've heard these seven sayings of the cross from these great communicators that shared from their heart the significance of them. But this is a gift. He is a gift for you. The Bible says that God loved you so much that he gift-wrapped his only son. 
that whoever would place their trust in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You hold an emblem, a representative of this broken body of Christ. He died for you, a gift for you. If you've ever doubted you're loved, let this be a moment that you remember. Oh, you're cherished. Let's take the bread together. Father, thank you for your son's bruised and broken body. And right now in this room, individually, we all have bruised areas of our lives. Every single person in this room has some brokenness, God. And we invite in this moment, on this Good Friday, for you to come in with your wholeness and you would heal that which is broken. The things we are aware of, the things we aren't aware of, but the people around us are, and the things, God, that nobody even sees, but they drive us towards making bad decisions in life because that brokenness has never been healed. And we invite your healing power into our minds, into our bodies, into our souls. In Jesus' name. Then we take the cup. And he said, this is my cup. This cup is the new covenant. Or another word of saying that is the new agreement between God and his people. And remember me as often as you drink it. Because this is an agreement confirmed for my, with my blood. Pastor Joe talked about that veil that had been torn into, and we don't need a high priest anymore. You don't have to come to me or, or one of the pastors or somebody to receive forgiveness of sins. You go directly to the top now. You have access to God the Father. It's incredible. And now you stand in Christ's righteousness. So just for a minute, I'd love you to think, what's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the thing that makes you feel most ashamed? Now, I don't want you to remember that to feel condemned by it. But there's a beautiful writer that's dead now, but he said this once, God, remind me of my sin, not that I might despair, but that I might be overwhelmed with how great your grace has been. So friends, even as you remember that, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When it's forgiven, it's done. It's done. So as we take the cup together, let's do it with some gratitude. Thank you, Jesus.